Hello, Bettys. Welcome to the show. Before we get to our guest today, I just wanted to let you know that we have such an epic list of guests coming up in March. We are talking about menopause. We're talking about autoimmunity. We're talking about muscle building. We're talking about recovery practices. And I don't want you to miss any of it. Even if you are listening to the podcast, you may not necessarily be subscribed. So you're going to have to manually go into your podcast app and press play. I would love for you to hit that subscribe button so that you are getting the podcast as they are released. It's going to make me oh so happy to know that you are a subscriber of the pod. You are officially a Betty in the Bettyverse. And of course, you are never going to miss an episode and be the first to know when it drops. Thank you so much. You know, the environmental food, stress, no sleep exposures. That's a, what, a 200 year old problem, right? And more recently, like really the last 50 years. Mm -hmm. Imagine what we're wired for, for 200,000 years, the package that we're walking around in versus what the reality we live in. And you wonder why chronic disease is so prevalent. Nobody has to have any of those things. They're all preventable. Welcome to Better with Dr. Stephanie. I am your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. This show is for women just like you with a deep desire for learning, self-actualization, and becoming more of who you already are. Every week, we are going to deconstruct how to build better bodies, better minds, better relationships, better sex, and better families. I'll be giving you access to world-class thought leaders to help give you the tools to answer this question. What are the simplest things that you can do today to get better tomorrow? I am part geek, part magic, and want to share the juiciest questions, topics, and often taboo conversations that I think I've always wanted to be a part of and I wanted to be having. So let's get better together. Hey friends, welcome back to Better with Dr. Stephanie. It's me, your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. And today we have a robust conversation around all things genetics and the predeterminants that will impact our mood, our brain, our propensity for depression and or anxiety, hormone regulation, the works. And so I spoke to the CEO of the DNA company. He's a good friend of mine, Kashif Khan, and we talked all things genetics today. So we started off talking about some of the differences in, let's say, gene. Uh, uh, when we look at different companies that run, you know, uh, a DNA report. So we looked. We talked about uh, single nucleotide polymorphisms. We also looked at copy variants, which is not something that's often looked at in traditional uh, gene reporting, and why that is important. We talked about. Um, hormones. So for the ladies and the clinicians who are listening, who are concerned with hormones, we started talking about um, the progesterone to androgen conversion, what happens to androgens once they are produced. So we start with testosterone and there are several different pathways that testosterone can take. The fate, you might say, of testosterone is different uh, depending on the genetic coding. Um, and then we move on from there into aromatization and estrogen metabolism, talking about the different phases of estrogen uh, elimination through conjugation, hydroxylate, uh, which is called um, uh, hydroxylation, rather. The second part is conjugation, and the third piece is elimination. Uh, and when we're talking about elimination, uh, we get into a very um, exciting conversation around methylation. So we talk about specifically a gene, uh, COMT, or catechol-O-methyltransferase, and we talk about the role that that gene has, not only in methylation, 
But of course, in uh, the degradation of catecholamines like dopamine, epinephrine, et cetera, and how that might change someone's proclivity for risk not taking risk. Uh, someone who, you know, this gene is often called the warrior or worrier gene. And so how the different uh, permutations of COMPT might alter certain personality um, traits. And we talk about glucuronidation, glutathionization, um, and antioxidation via superoxide dismutase. We talk about menopause. We talk about autism. So this is a really um, interesting conversation, uh, nuanced conversation, like most things are. And we talk about the uh, ability to detoxify um, adjuvants, let's say, in vaccines and uh, the environment as a predisposition um, for someone being exposed to some of those toxicants and the um, the, you know, multifactorial, let's say, um, um, presentation that can be called um, autism. So maybe you can tell from that that I'm not a huge fan of labels, but, you know, labels are uh, important to the English language to sort of classify clusters of um, uh, symptoms put together. So we talk about autism in that vein. We talk about um, learning and behavior. We talk about fat and carbohydrate, our ability to process fats and carbohydrates, how that is genetically uh, determined. We talk about emotional uh, intelligence as well as uh, what is con- or EQ and what is uh, called IQ or, you know, what we classify as intelligence as well. An overall, very interesting conversation. Moms and mothers alike, you will want to listen to this for yourself, for your children. And so without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Kashif Khan. I am a huge fan of the Bio Optimizers Magnesium Breakthrough. It has seven forms of magnesium, which is going to help to transform your stress and your performance and your recovery and your sleep to the next level. I'm often asked like, well, what are the types of magnesium we should be looking for? So there's magnesium chelate and citrate and bisglycinate and malate, sucrosomial, taurate and orotate. They have various effects on the body. Bisglycinate, probably the most bioavailable and most absorbable. Malate, it's found naturally in fruits, helps with migraines. Chronic pain has been shown to help improve depression. Magnesium citrate uh, helps with arterial stiffness. It helps with maintaining a healthy weight. Magnesium chelate is important for muscle building, recovery and health, the list goes on and on. You're basically getting them all in one supplement. Each supplement itself is 500 milligrams of magnesium, which I feel is such a great dosage as a great baseline for most women. I have found a beautiful medium of actually cycling my magnesium. So I actually will take one or two of these. So I'm either getting 500 milligrams or up to a gram of magnesium, depending on where I am in my cycle. So head on over to biooptimizers.com forward slash better and use code better for 10% off of any order, but make sure that the magnesium breakthrough is in your cart. Don't be fooled by the frigid temperatures. Keeping hydrated in the wintertime is super important. 
In colder temperatures, we sweat more due to a higher metabolic demand of trying to maintain a core body temperature. We lose more fluids and electrolytes through our urine. We lose more water through respiration and just general breathing. And our skin dries out in the wintertime as well. We are a ski family, and over this winter, we have been using Elementee's Chocolate Medley. The chocolate chai is absolutely incredible with some boiling water, a splash of milk. And my kids love the chocolate mint with some hot water. This is our apres-ski. We cozy up with Element Hot After Hours on our cross-country trails. Now, for a limited time, you too can get the Element Tea Chocolate Medley and enjoy them hot, as I have been doing, with this exclusive insider bundle for you. When you buy three boxes of any flavor, it doesn't have to be the chocolate, it can be any of the flavors that they offer, you are going to get the fourth box free. If you head over to drinkelement.com forward slash Dr. Estima, you'll see that exclusive offer at the bottom of the page. That's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T.com forward slash D-R-E-S-T-I-M-A. And tell me which of the chocolate, Melody, you love the best. Kashif Khan, my friend, Welcome to The Better Podcast. I'm thrilled that we are doing this. It's awesome to be here. Long overdue. I'm happy we're here. Long overdue, indeed. Um, this is something that we have been uh, we have been talking about for a while. We've had um, uh, Dr. Mansoor Mohammed on the show in the past, which we'll make sure that we link out into the show notes. Um, but I have wanted to have this conversation with you around genetics and how we can, as we learn about our genetic tendencies and preferences, how we might make alterations, let's say, to diet and or nutrition and the way that we conduct our lives. So we're going to get into a lot of juicy things today. Um, before before we do, we're going to talk about testosterone and estrogen and brain health and all the things. Uh, you are the CEO of the DNA company, which, um, you know, not blowing sunshine, but this is the only genetic company that I use now and we can talk a little bit about why that is but tell us a little bit about how you came to uh, run this company and how the company came to be sure so um i actually don't come from the space which is interesting because very rarely do you find someone in the biotech space that isn't either a phd or does lab work or you know actually ran this type of company before like any other functional medicine story all the great ones you hear i was sick Right. And I was looking to cure myself and help myself, and not only myself, my mom, my niece, a couple of people in the family. Uh, when I was in my late 30s, I'm now 42, I had a whole number of things that hit me at the same time. And the question that I asked, because I had never really been sick before, was why? You know, what did I do wrong? What did I eat wrong? What did I breathe wrong? Because that's really what I thought I needed to change. I never was prescribed a pill before. And now all of a sudden I was being prescribed five with MRIs and scans and all this different stuff. And I wasn't getting that answer, which made no sense to me. And so I started to find my own why. And I was digging, digging, digging. And I thought maybe there's something quote unquote genetically wrong with me because why am I the only person in my sort of circle office, whatever, that's feeling like this. And the like this was migraines, crazy eczema. I couldn't open my left eye. It was like sealed shut. Psoriasis, where if I like clasp my hand, my knuckles will start bleeding. Um, crazy gut issues, always bloated, couldn't eat, always disrupted and in and out of depression. So all this stuff I learned once I dove into my genome, that there was one central hub that was failing. And these were all spokes coming out of it. 
all these symptomatic, you know, my body screaming, please help me. Those were not the thing you're trying to fix. That's your body trying to communicate to you that you've ignored something for way too long. And now I can't handle it anymore. And I'm going to present this disease and this disease and this disease. And yes, I did acutely deal with those. But ultimately, when I was able to heal myself, starting at the cell, I realized everybody needs this. I literally walked away from my business and started to build a DNA company. And I think that uh, where we can fall into pitfalls or traps is that you can look at the psoriasis on your knuckles and say, oh, I should probably get some cream for that. Right. Or, oh, I'm, I'm depressed. I should probably take an SSRI or an SNRI or whatever for that. Rather right. than at what you were talking about is like this sort of central uh, hub in the system that had gone wrong. And then we're seeing some of the flares or some of the, you know, some of the spokes coming off of it as the, you know, I'm using your language the way that you'd said it. So I think that that's really important. I think there's a lot of nuance um, when we talk about uh, genes, I've had I've had a few uh, genetic profiles done. Um, one relatively large one, everybody kind of knows the twenty three and me, um, you know, report. And when I got it back, I was like, "Why did I pay two hundred bucks for this? This is, you know, it was like it, it said something like, you know, you're mo, you know, you're highly likely to have a unibrow." And it's like, guys. I'm Lebanese. Like I already, like, no, I already knew that. Like you didn't need to tell me I've been tweezing since I was 11. Like it's not, you know, that's not anything new. And then I think the other thing was you're most likely to smell if you've, if you've consumed asparagus, you can smell like you have the gene that allows you to smell the asparagus, you know, in urine. And I was like, I know that I know that already because I consume asparagus. So I thought that it was a little, uh, we'll say redundant. And then when I did the DNA company, there was a whole, you know, we did the hormonal pulse, which we're going to talk and focus in on today, but there was also, um, you know, cardiovascular, like it told me about my cardiovascular tendencies, my brain health, my tendency towards mood disorders, you know, why I'm an entrepreneur. Uh, and we can maybe talk a little bit about like entrepreneurial genes, let's say, or tendencies with entrepreneurs who are like, tend to be bigger risk takers and tend to, yeah. you know, like worrier versus warrior type of um, uh, behavior. But um, let's, let's talk a little bit about first, I, I want to just make some like set some ground rules. So the audience can kind of follow along. So when we're talking about genes, obviously, we're talking about some of the differences in the coding, let's say, right. So I want maybe for you to start by explaining what are some of the what does it mean when we have an SNP or a SNP single nucleotide polymorphism. And one of the things that I think DNA company, uh, D, the DNA company does that I haven't seen is look looking at copy number variants, so C and V. So can you first maybe start with sure. like, what are we doing when we're looking at a genetic report? What's a SNP? What's a CNV? Yeah. Why does it even matter? Right? Yeah. So, why does it matter? Yeah. Yeah. So what is a gene? It's your DNA is a literally a, an instruction manual that each one of your 50 trillion cells has inside. So your cells know what part of the manual to read because they know what type of cell they are that we don't yet understand this sort of miracle of what makes us up who we are but your heart cells reading the heart section your kidney cells reading the kidney section and then they do what they're supposed to do because the instruction tells them how to do it now if you have a book just like any other instruction manual there could be spelling mistakes there could be a page disrupted there could be a page missing and the belief has always been, remember, farmer research is always based on big data. The more data, the better. And then let's put some AI into it and find that needle in the haystack. That's kind of what the belief is. And when I find that needle in the haystack, I've made a billion dollar drug. And this is where the dependency has been on what we call the SMPs, like you call it. 
You have 20,000 some odd genes that make up your genetic code. Each one is thousands of letters long. So you can imagine the amount of data that makes up your human instruction manual. Sometimes there's a spelling mistake. The C is a T. It was supposed to be C and now it's a T. So that gene is getting the wrong instruction. Now, depending what that gene was supposed to do, suppose something like vitamin C metabolization. You may not metabolize vitamin C so well. And so that 500 to 1000 milligram dose is just not enough for you. Why? Maybe your, pain, your parents came from Spain and they lived off oranges. And over centuries and centuries of doing that, they didn't need to metabolize vitamin C so well because they got so much. Right? So we are now designed for what our ancestors did. But we're not doing what our ancestors did. And this is why we're so sick. So that's a SNP, an SNP, spelling mistake. There's something called an insertion or deletion, which means imagine the impact of a spelling mistake. What if there's a paragraph missing? You're trying to read this book and there's literally a paragraph gone. You can still kind of get what the book is saying, but there's a big piece of information missing. And you don't know how crucial that piece was because you don't know which paragraph is missing. That's possible in a lot of the mood and behavior genes, uh, some of the diet genes. It, it, it pops up in different places in your genome, not as frequently as the SMP, so they're not studies as much, but they're way more impactful. Then there's a copy number variation. What if you don't even have the gene? Forget about what spelling mistake or what piece is missing. Page torn out of your human instruction manual. You don't even have that page. The section that tells you how to change the wipers on your car, guess what? Volvo forgot to give it to you, right? That's literally the implication. So for me, that's actually what happened. The GST family, which makes up your glutathione pathway, your ability to bind toxins in your blood and send it to the liver. Everyone knows you drink a little bit of wine, your liver helps you get rid of the toxin, the alcohol. But how well do you do that? Why do we have different outcomes? Well, for me, there's some key genes there where I had the copy number variation, variation and not the good version where I had an extra copy, like one of our partners, Bryce, who you also know, he has an extra copy of the, these detox pathways. So he can drink paint and pee it out and he'll feel great. <laughs> me, you know, I was literally in our office building. There was a, a manufacturing company downstairs that was putting some pollutants into the air and it was killing me slowly because I didn't have the ability to get rid of it. And what happens when there's toxicity in your blood? Inflammation. Inflammation that leads to eczema because your skin is screaming. Inflammation that leads to neurological inflammation, which led to the migraines. Inflammation of the gut, gut, gut dysbiosis, which is why I couldn't eat anything. That neurological inflammation also leading to depression in combination with how my brain works, which we've talked about before genetically. So all of a sudden you can get much, much more uh, sort of sophisticated in what this, this stuff actually means. An average based, you have an 80% chance of Alzheimer's because of some SNP, but I'm also telling you I have a 20% chance of not getting Alzheimer's because it's the same data, just look the other way. Right. Or here's the exact biological pathways that cause Alzheimer's and here's how you do these things. Now you know where to focus and what to fix. That's the big difference. And it's, it's interesting because when you do have your own owner's manual, let's say, uh, oh. it, you can sort of retroactively, retroactively refre reflect on your life and understand why certain things have happened in the way that they did. Like, for example, when I was pregnant, uh, I remember I was trying to buy a rug, maybe for the nursery or something. And I walked into this carpet store and I became violently ill, like within a few minutes of being in there. I couldn't like the fumes of the carpets, maybe the off gassing or I had to leave immediately. And, you know, looking at the genetic 
my genetic profile, I have, and I was saying to saying this to you in the in our pre chat, and we're happy to use myself as an example here as we go through some of these um, different uh, SNPs and CNVs. Is I'm actually missing most of my glutathionization genes. Um, so my ability to sort of bind quinones and bind some of these DNA damaging chemicals and compounds that we see insulting the liver, or, pardon me, the lungs and the gut, which are like you know technically maybe exterior to the body. So they get the most insults, um, was very poor. So I walked into this carpet store and like had to immediately leave. And I was like throwing up and I was like, why is that so weird? So we obviously didn't end up buying a carpet for the nursery, <laughs> but it also oh. makes a lot of sense now when I'm like, Oh, that's right. My detoxification pathways are pretty weak. So I have to be very careful about some of the environmental toxicants that I expose myself to because my ability to sort of you know, metabolize and excrete and get rid of them is, is much, uh, slower and, or, uh, let's say attenuated than someone who doesn't have those, uh, those genes that are missing. This is a perfect example of not just, so when you look at the, their gene, call it failure, there's a red flag. There's two dials you can turn. One is let me make up for it somehow. I can take a supplement or I can change my diet to change my gene expression which means like how efficiently is that gene working? Even if, if you have the bad version, you can make it work a little better. Or I got to not expose myself to the things I'm not capable of or expose myself to the right thing. So as an example, you walk into that carpet store, it sounds harmless, but they wrap those things in burlap sacks that are doused in insect repellent to ship them so they don't get eaten up by moths because they're made out of wool, right? Then there's mothballs in every single pile you open that carpet up, which was just in a container from China for the last two months. You walk into that carpet shop, which is new inventory, new inventory, new chock full of that insect repellent, which you now just breathe in. And for you, again, Lebanese background, you didn't need it. Your ancestor didn't need it. Think of what Lebanon looked like 100 years ago, 1,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago. By the way, our DNA, when we think of our ancestors, it's not grandma. Our DNA as it currently stands is 200,000 years old. Correct. Yeah. So we are wired like people of 200,000 years ago. Our current reality of, you know, the environmental food, stress, no sleep exposures, that's a, what, a 200-year-old problem, right? And more recently, like really the last 50 years, if we really be like honest about what's going on in this world. Mm -hmm. So imagine what we're wired for, for 200,000 years the package that we're walking around in versus what the reality we live in. And you wonder why chronic disease is so prevalent. 90% of the U.S. healthcare budget is on chronic disease. Nobody has to have any of those things. They're all preventable. Yeah. Another another clinical observation um, that I've made just following up, just kind of building on this point uh, that you're making around our ancestors is a lot of private clients that I will uh, counsel um, let's say they have a European background. You mentioned Spain, maybe they're from Italy or they're from, you know, somewhere warm, Greece, Italy, whatever. Uh, often when we look at their vitamin D binding protein capacity, right. very poor. And it's like, oh, well, that makes a lot of sense because their ancestors were out in the sun. Like the Greeks were out in the sun tending to their fields. Italians, the same. Spanish, the same. You know, Portuguese, same kind of thing. And what we often find when we do run, uh, you know, uh, profiles from the DNA companies, we'll see, oh, their binding protein is really, really like slow. So we have to make sure that they're purposely, purposefully getting sun exposure because that's what they're 
genes require and expect of them. These 200,000 year old genes are expecting that they're working, maybe not 200,000, maybe 10,000, you know, you know, they're tending to the fields or they're out in a warm climate for a longer period of time. And then you take those Italian genes or those Greek genes and you ship them over to Toronto, which is where I'm <laughs> from, you know, and then we have, you know, you have summer, we have beautiful summer, beautiful spring and fall, but we also have winter. Um, you know, those, those genes are not necessarily made for, um, long cold winters with very poor sun exposure. And then again, to your point around, uh, you know, the 90% of the budget, uh, of us healthcare is going to chronic disease. You know, I would, I would also add that 90 to 95% of the time North Americans and Western society in general now spends their time indoors. So what mm-hmm. does that do to our ability to create and synthesize vitamin D from the skin? It, tanks, right? So, and you can't, and there's just, you know, and we can talk about supplementation, of course, like, which is usually what I try to do for my, you know, Canadians and Americans that have all four seasons, but it's not the same. Like supplementation is not not the same as sun's like exposure to the sun. Yeah. And the impact, you know, people don't realize the impact of something that sounds so minute They're like, oh, vitamin D. Okay. Well, you know, something it's not, it's not heart disease, but it is. It, oh, but it is. Yeah. yeah. Give, it, give it 20 years and it is. Yeah. 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 The, the 20,000 genes or so that I mentioned that you have, 2,000 of them require vitamin D to function. So 10% of this human biochemistry that's going on, all the switches that are being turned and dials that are being turned, require vitamin D to literally make them happen. It really acts more as a hormone. My personal belief is that we call it vitamin D because if we actually call it what it was and everybody had enough, there'd be no healthcare budget. It'd be very different healthcare spend because it's it's so important in so many processes, 10% of human biochemistry. And the reason, like you said, if you came from an equatorial climate, a lot of sun ancestrally, then maybe you don't metabolize it well. You don't draw out of the sun well, or maybe you don't transport it well, or maybe you don't bind it well. This is why out of all the micronutrients, only vitamin D has this complex of a pathway. It's not just this gene metabolizes vitamin C, which that's the truth. There's one gene that does it. There's three separate steps and three separate genes, three separate processes, because if you have too much, it's a problem, right? And if you don't have the exact amount you need, it's also a problem. So the, the, the metabolic pathway is much more complex. And so the solution is also a little more complex. It's not just take vitamin D, but maybe I need it multiple times a day. Maybe during the winter, I need more than I do in the summer. You know, why is there so much seasonal mood disorder? It's not just the, the gray clouds. You literally neurologically are not functionally efficiently because you don't have enough vitamin D. Right. Right. You can start to predict these things. So little thing like that can make all the difference. Yeah. 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 Love this. Okay. So let's start, let's start talking a little bit about some of the different, um, I'd like to, and we can, I think this is going to be a really, um, juicy conversation in general. Let's start with some of the sex hormones, because I know that, uh, I was saying to you in the pre-chat, lots of, so lots of clinicians who listen to the show, also lots of women kind of in their perimenopausal menopausal years that are just trying to figure out what's going on and how to optimize for either the eventual transition to menopause, or if you're already in menopause, like how to optimize where you are. So let's let's maybe start with androgens um, and start maybe with um, the conversion to androgens. So we have uh, CYP17A1, uh, which is kind of the main, uh, we'll bring that, you know, that's sort of where we bring progesterone conversion into T or testosterone. Um, 
what are, so when we, when we create testosterone, uh, what are the different fates, let's say that testosterone has, like, what are the different, um, potential complications with less than optimal gene expression and where does like, first, where does testosterone go? And then where can we run awry? So in that, that's step one, even understanding that it's not a linear, you know, one size fits all model. We're very unique in the way we metabolize hormones. When we first start, by the way, I should say one thing. The thing that sucks the most in healthcare is female hormone health. You know, we, we in our research phase, we studied 7,000 people, about half men, half women. And the thing that kept screaming, well, you're supposed to have this problem. It's a gray area. Nobody, you know, it, it's female hormones. Right. And we take for granted that infertility, bad menopause, PMS, all these problems are just part of being a woman. Not at all true. What's, what's true is that our metabolic pathways for hormones are a little different. And so the one size fits all certainly does not work. And the endocrine disruptors of food, the chemicals, the et cetera, the birth control pills, everything that's adding a load to us, or I shouldn't include myself that to women, you know, it's just, it, it, the impact is amazing. And I can't believe that every woman doesn't have a Nobel Peace Prize right now for trying to survive <laughs> the North American healthcare system because it sucks so bad. But yeah. anyways, we're trying to fix it together. So let's work on it. Uh, so testosterone. Yes, CYP17A1 determines how quickly you convert progesterone into testosterone. So the first step is how many hormones do I make? What's that bucket look like? You know, because now you've decided how much you've loaded the gun and what you're going to do with it. So some women have a lot more hormones. Someone just, they just start off with less. So they're starting off with a problem to begin with. Once you fill that testosterone bucket, you may convert it into with the CYP1981 gene estrogen, right? That's the end of the pathway. You then convert it to estrogen. But before doing that, your body has a few more options, depending on what version of these genes you have. CYP3A4 eliminates the clean androgen. So that, that initial bucket that you filled, before you have the ability to convert it into estrogen, you may get rid of it as a, as a testosterone. And very few women do this, but, but some do. I would say it's like a 5 to 7% problem. A lot more women, however, convert the testosterone into DHT. SRD5A2, that's the gene that converts your testosterone, converts it into DHT, which is the manly man, superman version of testosterone, where you can see every ripped muscle and there's no fat. And it also causes other problems like hair, skin, cystic acne, right? Where you can get very specific about why these things are happening. But another nuance, once you convert into DHT, there's a gene that uh, in your multiple detox pathways instructs what's called glucuronidation. It's another form of clearance. Uh, the UGT genes, there's two of them. And that's where you can have a copy number variation. You might not even have the gene. And so you're making this DHT and you also don't get rid of it. There's a young lady in our research phase that came to us who uh, was 22, had her first menstrual cycle at 16. And by the age of 22 had six total. Wow. One per year. Mm. Her concern was that her acne was so bad that she had to walk everywhere with a rubber donut. She couldn't sit on a chair. Her hair was falling out. She had acne head to toe. She had an amazing ripped six pack. Like you could see, uh, it was more like an eight pack actually, but everything else was falling apart for her. She didn't have the, the female physique she desired. You know, the breast development was slow, the hips were slow. She didn't have any of the stuff that she wanted. Um, and so all of a sudden her father who was an internist, uh, found out she had uh, non-fatty liver issues 
And so they put her on some kind of pills. They blamed all this on the pills. They said, this is a side effect of the medication you're taking. It's a load on your body. And so you're getting pimples because of toxicity. Your hair is falling out because of toxicity, inflammation. That's what they blamed it on. In reality, she fueled that testosterone bucket really heavy. So a lot of hormones. She zero eliminated the testosterone. She zero converted it into estrogen. She 100% converted it into DHT. And she had both copies of both. Oh, sorry. She had zero copies of both glucuronidation genes. So she did not get rid of it. So she was just a hypercharged androgenized DHT producer. So she She's was a female girl. with a body that was behaving more male. Yes. She, and, and even that an alpha male. Yeah. Right. She was designed to be Wonder Woman or Superman. That's what she was designed for. And, and she wasn't using it. She wasn't doing any of that. She just wanted to be what she believed a woman is. And so literally it took, um, so again, 16 to 22, had that problem for six years. I told you six menstrual cycles. It took about three months of using food and supplements to up and down regulate certain gene pathways of the ones we already spoke of. And she literally walked into our office crying, saying it's the first time I feel like a girl. She walked in with her ponytail, you know, blue, beautiful, glowing skin, all this stuff. And she felt amazing. And it wasn't a clinical, it wasn't a disease. She didn't have a, there was no what, there was a why. What's the root cause of all of this? And it was just an ex, a very exaggerated androgenized profile, which you very, very rarely see. So I spoke about an exaggerated profile because that's, you could be, you know, zero to 10 on that profile. And from what she's experienced down to something like PCOS, or, you know, acne on your cheeks, so you just can't get rid of, or I want to be a little bit curvy, but I just can't, I want to look like, and it could be the opposite. I need to be a little less curvy. I, I do. Everybody has goals, the trial and error, the one size fits all, I don't think is necessary anymore. You know, what we under now, we, what we now understand about genomics and how easy it is to do, you can just read your map and know on day one exactly what you need. It's, it's become that easy. Yeah. And I, and I think for, uh, I'm so glad that you brought up PCOS because it's the most common hormonal, uh, right. you know, issue that we will see with women. Uh, I think the latest numbers are like a hundred million women worldwide. And that is, that is a number, you know, like a hundred million women worldwide dealing with PCOS. And, you know, to your point around the Nobel Peace Prize, there's <laughs> usually an average when we see some kind of hormonal disruption, there's a huge delta between the time when a woman says, hey, something's wrong. I have six menstrual cycles or my hair is falling out or I have hair on my chest. I don't think that that or, you know, on my back or I'm anovulatory or whatever. Um to the point of diagnosis. Like I think, uh, I know endometriosis is like a, a mean of like seven to eight years before the diagnosis is given. PCOS is right. similar. It's like five to seven years, something like that. And like, think about five, what you were doing five years ago. That's a long time to be oh, fighting no. and continually saying something is wrong. It's not in my head. Something's wrong with me. Like that really does take a toll on the psyche of a woman as well, which is, you know, partially, I'll say, why we do see in these populations with hyperandrogenization with our women, where we see depression and anxiety. And they don't want to, and we don't want to talk about depression. Like everyone will say, yeah, I have hair on my chin, or I have like, we're very, 
we're much more likely, in my experience as a clinician anyway, and I'm sure you can chime in on this with all the cases that you've seen, but people don't want to talk about mental illness. They don't want to mm-hmm. talk about depression. We've seen that with the pandemic. You know, we completely ignored it. It was like, let's save every single life. Anyone who gets this, you know, this disease, this COVID or whatever, we're going to sacrifice everyone's mental health to make sure that that happens. We're going to isolate people and we're not, and I don't mean to go down this tangent, but uh, yeah. I will, I will pull myself back in, but I'm just, what I'm trying to say is that your piece PCOS patient, if you're a clinician listening to this, is not going to tell you that she's suffering, that she's anxious and that she's depressed. She will tell you that she's anovulatory. Her cycles are, she can't get pregnant. She can't stay pregnant. She can't get or maintain a pregnancy. All of these different things that we've been talking about. But I also just want to highlight that some of these mental health issues are also happening in the background. But I think as a society, we're still so ashamed. There's still such a stigma um, around it as well. Big, big taboo. And that's where when we when we meet with patients clinically, we have their genome in hand. So we already know what's going on in their head, whether they tell us or not. And and when I say that, I'm not saying that this person is an anxiety patient. This person is a depression patient. Why did why is there such a big mental health wave? Like you said, after lockdown post COVID, those people were not they didn't have a condition. The context drove that out of them. Correct. They were they were thir- they were fl- flourishing before that. There was no problem. Mm-hmm. They didn't have depression. They didn't have anxiety. They maybe had little, you know, little bits of it here and there. But the clinical, I think I need a pill. It's because whatever they're wired for, that optimal environment for their brain, they were no longer in, and all of a sudden they were suffocating their superpower, and it it, it expresses as a problem, which we can dive into and spend just an hour on that. Mm. Uh, but yeah, that's a big one, and we see that taboo as well. Um, Going back to the hormone pathway, once a woman, which most women do, you know, get deep into their estrogen pathway, they've now converted and they finish that step one uh, sex hormone pathway. What do I actually make? That's what we just kind of covered. The next phase of that is what metabolite do I convert it into? And this is phase two of three. There's three things we got to talk about. So some women go down the 2-hydroxy pathway, which is great. Clean, healthy stuff, which is what you want to make. CYP1A1 and CYP1A2, those are the genes that convert the estrogen into this pathway. And when I say that, it means that before you have your monthly monthly menstrual cycle, you're converting into this metabolite, and that's actually what you're getting rid of. There's also the 4 and 16-hydroxy pathway, which are toxic. Uh, 16 being super toxic. We see it in breast cancer patients. Uh, We see it in ovarian cancer. We see it in men that have testicular cancer, right? Super, super potent toxin. And I can't tell you how many women we see that are down the 4-hydroxy pathway. Now, given that we've, okay, we've established a woman may be estrogen dominant. She just makes a lot more estrogen. We can determine that from the first step. We may establish that she's also estrogen toxic. Well, then step three, how well does she clear? We have to look at the genes that get rid of this toxic metabolite. And if you're doing really well there, it may not be that big of a deal, right? That's where you can personalize and say, okay, I make this stuff, but the genes that get rid of it, I have the best versions. Not many of us do, right? Not many of us came from an ancestry that required this. So some of the same genes that deal with brain chemicals like COMPT, uh, the same GST genes we talked about, the glutathione, the detox genes, plus antioxidative genes like SOD2. These are the multiple things we have to map, which we have mapped. It's very easy to understand in the algorithm. How well do you now clear that potential toxic metabolite that you make? And if you are that woman that is estrogen dominant, estrogen toxic, bad detox pathways, well, there's a red flag. 
there's not a red flag for this equals 80% chance of something. We don't think that way. We now say, here's your avatar. Here's the bucket you fit in. You're in the estrogen toxic, no clearance bucket. Here's the risks. If you have the wrong environment, nutrition, and lifestyle loads, are you one of those 85% of North American women that was on a birth control pill for five to 15 years? Are you one of those North American women that as she starts to age, immediately starts going on hormone replacement therapy without understanding which one? Not I'm saying not to do it or not, but did you do it right? Right, precise for how the way your body needs it. Are you that woman that doesn't understand hormone disruption and something as simple as a Teflon coated frying pan or the chemicals that make your lawn so beautiful or the cleaning spray on your desktop that you're now breathing in all day long? Are you that woman that's exposed to that stuff? So profile, here's my genes. Here's the load that if they were on the bad profile would push me over the edge, that threshold where my body can't cope. And that's when things like breast cancer, ovarian cancer, crazy menopause, crazy menstrual cycle, pain, you can't get out of bed for a week. Why is there so much variability in this thing that women go through? Some women don't even know that their cycle is coming. Some women can't go to work. Why is there a difference? Because the way you make hormones, their toxicity level, and the way you clear them is different. Plus, your environment, nutrition, lifestyle choices are different. The combination of these three things is your net result. Right now, you can be very, very predictive and precise about how you're going to feel. And if you fear breast cancer, if you fear Alzheimer's and dementia, if you don't want a crazy menopause, start working on it today. It's very, very easy to do. I can't tell you how many breast cancer patients where we dug into the not the what, but why did they get breast cancer? Let the doctor deal with the acute, you know, whether it's surgery or radiation or whatever, but we will go back a few layers to the why and tell you what habits to adopt so it doesn't happen again. Umpteen times we've had to do that. Can you define for the listener, you've talked about estrogen dominance and toxicity. I just want to make sure that those are clear in the, uh, for the, like, what is the difference between someone who's estrogen dominant, which we hear a lot. We hear a lot of people, right. even online experts will say, oh, do you run estrogen dominant? Do you have these symptoms? What is yeah. the difference between that and estrogen toxicity? So in that first pathway we talked about, when you asked me about testosterone, yeah. that's the thing we all make. Then what do we do with it? Some women heavy, heavy, heavy converted into estrogen. They don't clear the androgen. They don't turn it into DHT. So this is the aromatization that you're talking about. Yes. Okay. Aromatization converted into an estrogen, big bucket full of estrogen. And there's a gene that tells us how well you do that. And if you have the fast version, this is where you land in. But also we look at the other pieces of the map. So SIP1981, if you have the fast version, you're converting into estrogen. So you're now estrogen dominant. That's understood sometimes functionally by certain doctors as bad news, but they're not considering that it's bad news for the woman who's also estrogen toxic, right? If your estrogen, estrogen isn't a bad thing. It makes your hair beautiful, makes your skin beautiful. It gives you, it, it's good for your muscle. It's good for a lot of things, right? But if it's produced into a toxic metabolite, or if you had the wrong hormone disruption, exaggerating that estrogen dominance, that's when it's a problem. Okay. Right? Even men need estrogen. Men have the exact same genetic pathway that I just described. It's identical. There's no difference. The difference is we do it daily and women do it monthly. And we just happen to lean more towards testosterone. But it's the same pathway. There's no difference. I am incredibly bullish on sauna as a therapy for recovery, heart health, and overall aging well. 
I personally decided on an infrared sauna from Sunlighten because of the range of far wavelengths and near infrared wavelengths that it offers. Saunas help with detoxification and rejuvenation to rid your body of toxins. It helps with heart health by improving circulation, reducing blood pressure, and helping keep the arteries supple. It helps with muscle recovery by easing the tension and soreness to recover faster. And of course, stress reduction with the warmth and the relaxation of sitting in a sauna. It's crucial for hormonal balance and achieving a state of well-being necessary for a strong physique and a strong mind. If you visit sunlighten.com slash better and use code better to get a discount, that is sunlighten, S-U-N-L-I-G-H-T-E-N.com slash B-E-T-T-E-R and use code better at checkout. So when we're looking at some of the metabolism, so let's, okay, so we're at the, we've aromatized the estrogen and now we sort of arrive and you described some of them already, the two hydroxy pathways. So now we're sort of at what, what you might say, uh, well, it's called hydroxylation, right? So essentially what we're doing now is we're going to add a hydroxy group to the estrogen. We're either going to go down the two hydroxy estrogen pathway, which you mentioned is the productive pathway. And I think that we want something like 70% at least uh, of our estrogen or estradiol, estrone to be going down that pathway. And then we have the 4-OH pathway, which by the way, I like my body likes this pathway. <laughs> okay, so in addition to not being able to and like like missing my glutathionization, my body also has a tendency when I did my um, profiling with the DNA company. My body likes the far away pathway, which is not right. the protective pathway. So this is an estrogen agonist, meaning that it when you go down this pathway, you are retaining the ability to still activate the estrogen receptor. So think about what that does in the breast tissue, right? It continues cell proliferation because estrogen is anabolic by nature, right? It also shuts down bone uh, bone um, uh, gro- or bone resorption rather. Oh, sorry, pardon me. I said that backwards. So it shuts down bone growth and uh, accentuates breast uh, cell proliferation. So that's just like a recipe for brittle bones and breast cancer if you're yeah. not if you're not being careful. So from a um, uh, from a clinical point of view, let's say, what are some things, because I know that it is possible to jump pathways. Certainly that's been important in my own healing because I you know, wrote a book about what we're talking about in terms of being really estrogen dominant, hating my period for years, thinking I was like cursed. Um, so what are some things clinically that we might consider if someone does their test, let's say with a DNA company, and it says, hey, you have a preference for this 4-hydroxyestrogen or estro- uh, estradiol or estrone pathway. Um, what are some of the things that we might do to be able to to say, hey, we don't want to go down this proliferative pathway. We want to go down the protective one. What are some things that we might consider? Sure. So when we answer those questions, we're, we maybe overthink things a little bit, but it becomes perfect. right? And why do I say that? Because there's some women, like I have to ask how old you are, how much do you weigh, et cetera. Because when women get into menopause, the activity of two versus four is a little unique it can actually be problematic to be down the 2-hydroxy pathway for a short period, right? Mm-hmm. Only during that phase. And so we try and focus on an answer that solves all the answers. And for us, the easiest thing is, why don't we slow down the estrogen pathway? We'll give, if you're already estrogen dominant and toxic, that's the combination. We know supplements you can take, simple ingredients that will literally slow that pathway down. But we actually make a product, the one unique thing we did was in the middle of our office, we opened a a compounding pharmacy. I think you came and saw it actually. I did, yeah. (laughs) 
So we literally built a pharmacy in the middle of our office so that we could sit there and compound ingredients like supplement ingredients and measure the effect on gene pathways, right? And how the, the, the expression changes. And we did this for a number of years with hundreds and hundreds of people. And we came up with these cocktails and we make something called estrogen E, like estrogen uh, dominant, right? Uh, sorry, female E, I should call it, sorry, which helps slow down that CYP19A1 pathway. Uh, and we also did the same thing on the androgen side. Here's the ingredients that are blocking that conversion. So as opposed to um, dealing with the disease or the problem, let's go right at the genetic expression level, right? Let's slow that down. Or you can deal with the, the toxic side because if you are if you are converting the detox pathway, or sorry, into the toxic byproduct and you're also not detoxing it well, that's gonna affect a lot of things. Why is it that women in their first cardiovascular event with no previous symptoms or warning signs, 66% chance of death. 66% North American women will die on their first heart attack or cardiovascular event. It's, it's not that for men, it's a tiny fraction because the inflammatory load of estrogen toxicity is a cofactor to what's going on with the heart. You're setting yourselves up for when that trigger is pulled, you can't come back. You're just way far too far gone. Right. So this is why I would add and I would add to that. Sorry to interrupt you, that physicians are not trained on the unique symptomatology that females have when they're having an MI. So if someone is having a myocardial infarct for a woman, oftentimes it feels like indigestion or a headache versus, you know, we were all taught, I was taught in school, like, hey, a heart attack, like an NMI is like radiating pain down the left arm and like grabbing the shoulder, like the left side. And it's like, that's not the experience of most women. So most women, when they get to the emergency, they're like, hey, something's wrong. I'm having the worst headache of my life. They're often sent back home. Yeah, it's rooted. So this is that goes back to the inflammation. It's rooted in inflammation. So that that trigger, heart's finally failing, is cofactor to that heavy load of inflammatory insult you're already under, which may express neurologically, which may express in the gut, which may express with mood. It could express in many ways. It depends what else is broken. Mm. Right. What, what hardware are you putting that on now? That's a whole other discussion. So th- this is why the experience and the outcome is very different. And so the, the real area we really like to focus, yes, you can take ingredients that can focus on gene expression at the hormone level, but we like to focus on the detox level because if you deal with that, you know, yes, I'm making more of the stuff every month, but it deals with everything because there's so many other problems that are going to come out of this, right? It's, why are women, 80% of the research dollars on Alzheimer's is spent on men, but 80% of the cases are on women? Because what causes it in women is not what we're studying. It's also hormone related, right? It's also, anyway, so go on a rant about that, but we, we focus on the actual detox side, which is glutathione, antioxidation, glucuronidation, if it's the androgen, and then your compt activity coupled with methylation, your anti-inflammatory response, right? So we, that's where we try and focus. Uh, we make stuff. There's a ton of stuff you can get for all of these buckets. The only thing I would say is when it comes to glutathionization, you got to be very precise where not enough glutathione, taking glutathione might not be the answer. If you are like yourself, where you don't have optimal glutathione genes and you take glutathione, it's like a 16-year-old child trying to bench press 300 pounds. You aren't ready for it. Your body doesn't know what to do with that. It's actually going to make you more sick. 
And I can't tell you how many patients came to us from naturopaths that were on glutathione, didn't work. Methylated, methylated B vitamin, like everything methylated. Yeah, Yeah, I'm like, yeah, yeah, everyone would get sick. I'm like, well, let's look at, let's look at your methylation capacity because if you're just pumping the system with CH3, like you're not going to do any, any better there. Yeah, exactly. And that's where the personalization day one, you can know exactly what to do. So that's where we usually intervene is on the toxin side, but we can also jump in on the hormone side, especially if somebody wants to get into like BHRT and we have to block like aromatase or whatever. You right. can you can get very precise with what where you want to intervene as well. Well, let's talk a little bit about methylation. Um, I know that there's a very famous gene. Everyone likes to pretend like it's a swear word, um, MTHFR. Um, so let's let's talk about just even the word methylation, I think, is a little abstract for people. It's like, what does that even do? Uh, right. I often describe it as almost like a relay race. Like it's like the baton is CH3 and we're just passing the baton until we get to the yeah. finish line. Um, but let's talk about what methylation is and how poor methylation can affect estrogen metabolism and other and other things in the body as well. So what you described it is exactly how it should be described and what nobody describes it as. Everyone talks about the MTHFR gene only because it's the most studied. So what, what you know, when, if you're not in this space and you're say, you know, some functional medicine doctor in Ohio that just happened to need a genetic test, you're going to go Google something and you're going to be bombarded with MTHFR articles. And so that's what you think you're supposed to know. Why? Because the research is all done by pharma. Going back to the very first thing I said, looking for the needle in the haystack. What's that thing that if I turn this gene on or off, it may only work on six out of 10 people, but it's going to turn into a drug for me. So why? Well, what do we do about the other four? So the other four are the full cycle, meaning that baton pass of FUT2, SHMT1, there's, yes, there's MTHFR, there's a couple SNPs we look at, those spelling mistakes, there's MTR, MTRR. So if you look at the whole cycle, once again, just like we talked about hormones, you can step in at any place in that cycle and know exactly how you're doing that one micro function in this full function. So you know where to intervene, with what and why. A simple thing like folic acid, you get pregnant, you're given folic acid. If you have the suboptimal SHMT1, which a lot of women do, it doesn't work for you. You need folinic acid. Your body can't use the folic, but there isn't a single pregnancy tablet on Shoppers Drug Mart or CVS shelf that isn't folic acid. But because again, seven out of 10 people, eight out of 10 people, great. But the two or three that it didn't work on are gonna have a horrible outcome. So what is methylation? It's really technically, it's, so it, General terms, anti-inflammation. That's the outcome. Reduces inflammation. How a methyl group, a molecule attaches to another molecule. There's certain toxins that are not water-soluble. You can't pee them out. And so they require a methyl group being attached in order for your body to get rid of them. There's a signal to like, here, here's how we get rid of this thing, right? So in that process, there's first the baton pass of methylation. Then the tail end of it, and this may be the most important thing I say about methylation that nobody considers, is comped. So comped, which we talk about for hormones, we talk about for the brain, for neurochemicals, is also the tail end of methylation. So you can be methylating great. And how many times do you have these anomalies where you go again, get some tests done, and you're told, great methylation, don't worry about it. But why am I always inflamed? Why does everything suck? When I get a mosquito bite, it lasts two weeks. My friend, it's gone in two days. I can't deal with inflammation because that everything, the garbage is all being brought to the door, but the door is closed. You have no comped. Comped being slow doesn't clear the stuff out. 
right? So I would almost sometimes start there. Just like when you talk about functional medicine routines, a lot of clinicians will say, well, I'm not going to work on your detox until I get you pooping properly. Because there's no problem helping you detoxify when it's not going anywhere. So they'll often start there. Same thing with methylation. Let's open up your compound. Let's figure out what's going on there. Then we'll work on the methylation side. Then you have the exit door open so that this stuff is actually efficiently doing something. To intervene, it's all the B complexes, B12. Is it under my tongue sublingual? Is it is it in the gut? Is it a methylated version, like you said, or is it adenosyl, very different version of B12, which we find a lot of people need? You know, the very simple, call it anthropological fact, is that some of our ancestors ate beef and some didn't. So some of us have the ability to metabolize B12 in our gut because our ancestors ate beef and that's the way the B12 is delivered. But most of us, I don't say some of us, most of us don't. Most ancestries did not eat beef. That's a fairly novel, new Western European phenomenon. Most of us go sheep, lamb, poultry, fish, vegetables, plants. That's what our ancestors ate. And so we are wired to metabolize and absorb B12 under our tongue sublingually as we chew. That's why grandma says chew your food because that process of taking in micronutrients literally starts in your mouth. So if you start to understand these things, you can be so precise and just get rid of the headaches and all that trial and error and just do what you need. And one of the things, uh, so COMPT, the gene that you're referring to is catechol O-methyltransferase. So as the enzy- as the name suggests, it's transferring methyl. Um, also metabolizes things like dopamine, like other catecholamines, right? So the dopamine, epinephrine, et cetera. And this yeah. is often called the worrier warrior gene. Uh, which I remember you and I, uh, we had a conversation many years ago about this maybe being like an entrepreneurial gene, because I think to become, I mean, I think being an entrepreneur, and this is for the clinicians who don't identify you are, let me just break the news to you right now. (laughs) You are an entrepreneur. If you are in practice for yourself, uh, maybe, you know, if you're a medical doctor, it's a little different, but if you are a naturopath, a chiropractor, physical therapist, uh, osteopath, you are also an entrepreneur. Like what crazy person, how crazy do you have to be to set, like to go against the grain, to not get a safe job working for someone else with benefits and say, you know what, I'm going to change the health of my community. I'm going to open up a practice. (laughs) I'm going to be not only the boss, I'm going to be the technician who delivers. I'm going to be HR. I'm going to be marketing. I'm going to be sales. I'm going to put all this together and it's all going to be great. (laughs) So can we talk a little bit about how uh, the comp gene is, uh, and we can maybe uh, start talking a little bit about brain health in here as well, because I think that this is also, you know, when I, when I learned about my own comp gene, I'm, uh, heterozygous for it. So I was like, oh, that's how I could for long periods of time sit down and study. Like I could sit down and focus on something. And Mm. I also have a proclivity for taking not big risks. Like I'm not like the super entrepreneur, like the serial entrepreneur that like starts 10 businesses, but I've started a few and they've all been really, they've all been relatively risky. Um, So can we talk a little bit about how the comp gene uh, interacts, let's say with our metabolism of dopamine and some of the other, uh, other catecholamines? It's time for a rant. You know, I'm going to go off on a rant now because when it comes to the brain, that's my favorite part of what we do because, well, kind of like what we talk about female hormone health, it's underserved, uh, but it's also just not recognized. So at least the women know that they have a problem and they're, they're asking for help. When it comes to this stuff, people have no clue what, what should, what's right, what should be right, what's wrong, what should be wrong, all that stuff. So 
So starting with comp, but the profile you described, I'll use that as our avatar. Sure. You know, the, the graduate who's opening their own clinician and what does it take for that person to succeed? And if they don't have it, what do they need to do? Right? Because it doesn't mean they can't achieve it. They understand what equipment they've been given. If you are, if you buy a Ferrari, great, you bought a Ferrari. If you take it off-roading, it's not so great anymore. It's going to fall apart. But if you take an SUV off-roading, it's going to do pretty well. They'll actually beat the Ferrari. So understanding what your innate capacity is, and we're not all the same, and then putting yourself in the right context. That's how you thrive. And if you're in the wrong context, you need to know, so you can either change it or adapt and add the tools you need. So starting with Compt, yes, it clears your dopamine pathway out, or the dopamine uh, itself out, sorry. You start with first, when it comes to uh, mood, we see things in three phases. The anticipation. I smell the tasty pizza. I know it's coming. The feeling. I bit into the tasty pizza. Oh, wow. The clearance. Go back to normal of going to work or whatever I was doing before. Right? That's how you experience most things. If I use Compt, so first DRD2, the, the dopamine pathway determines to what degree do you actually bind dopamine. So when that thing starts, are you binding it efficiently? Are you actually anticipated and excited? Or are you stone cold and you don't feel? When it actually happens, did you feel it at the level of the peers around you? Like, this is amazing. Like, yeah, it's okay. Right? Because you just can't feel. And then while they're still enjoying the meal, are you now on your phone distracted by something else because your comp is so fast, you can't stay in the moment long enough? So if that's you, you're a warrior. You, you, you know, three outcomes, depression, because you don't feel, addiction, because dopamine powers pleasure, and you go down this route of something that finally gives you that hit, that's such a wow factor that you do it and you do it and you do it and you structure your day around and you do it more and more and more until you kill yourself. Or achievement, because dopamine also powers reward. And you only need to do one of the two to feel satisfied. And so you go down this reward route and you take risks and risks and risks and risks. And then the reward from the risk feels so good that the failures don't really matter. So that's the avatar of the person who is reward seeking. If they were in the context of needing reward, that same clinician that was about to open the practice that was willing to put their money on the line and go start a brand and do all the stuff, taking a risk could have also gone down the depression route because they didn't have that option in front of them. Don't feel satisfied with what's going on and just fall apart. Why, why do you see so many high level people, Anthony Bourdain committing suicide, you know, Olympic athletes killing themselves, high optimal achievement people, because the second they're not getting the hit, depression. They're not wired for pleasure. Right? And so it that's takes one. so much to activate those dopamine receptors as well. Yes, like they need so much. Yeah, yeah. That's why they achieve so much because yeah. they have to, they have to take risks. They have to go way beyond what everyone else does to get the same level of hit. To, to maintain, maintain some level of satisfaction. So now on top of that, you talked about, but these people also wear multiple hats. They're the, they're the marketing person, they, they're the, the podcaster, they're also the clinician, they're also receiving the legal letters in the mail, right? So there's a certain profile that can do that. You talked about BDNF, brain-derived neurotropic factor. Yeah. That's that gene that determines how well you deal with neuroplasticity. Your brain developing neural connections that you know the synapses that information flows through these highways of your brain and this one gene will determine how efficiently you develop these connections 
So for some people that are highly efficient, and you'll often see this in the warrior high performance category, they do a really good job of that. So not only can they develop a lot of skills, but at a masterful level, they're never uh, call it a PhD of any of them. They're not the true thought leader in them, but they can do 85% of everything, which makes them this multi-hat wearing entrepreneur, right? It's very easy for them to shift gears, learn new skills, and they have the fast comp, which allows them to multi-prioritize and not get stuck in a particular reward or experience. They can move on to the next one, right? The opposite, if you have the low BDNF, you're more a specialist, tunnel vision. This is what I do. Don't move me from my desk, right? I'm not going to talk about it. I'm not going to write about it. This is what I do. But they are a true thought leader. They do it better than anybody. They need an assistant for every single step of the way. You know, they can't do it. Literally, the thing they do is all they do. You get an email from them, it's probably three pages. And it could have taken two lines. Because they think so deep about everything they do. But that person can't wear the multiple plan. They can't be an entrepreneur. But they can't even burden the thought of, I have to think about legal, I have to think about marketing, I have to oh, forget it. Somebody else do all that. Think about the scientist in the lab. Right? The research, I, I was going to say the researcher or the academic. Yeah. Yes, the yeah. academic, perfect example. I do this better than anybody, but don't ask me to even go to the other room and talk to people. This is what I do to do it in this room, right? That's how tunnel vision it is. Uh, and then, you know, there's variability in between. So these are the kind of the two extremes. So entrepreneurs are usually on, on this end, but you will find that random unique person who's on the other far end that happened to build the team around them. Different reason for their success. They didn't, they had the call that they were the, uh, the IP, but some, somebody else builds everything around them, right? Now that's another, so now there's serotonin. Serotonin is often spoken of for your mood. How do I feel? Your mood regulator. Uh, and there's supplements like 5-HTP that people take to modulate or regulate their serotonin uptake and how they feel. It does a lot more. So it yes, your mood, what it actually does and why it affects your mood, it determines how well your brain prioritizes stimulus. So when we're sitting here talking, there's been several times where there's been a kid walking by the window and I've noticed it every time, right? I've learned to focus but I have the shortest possible serotonin receptor, which means that every single detail and nuance stands out to me. Everything is irritable. Everything is bothersome. Everything is frustrating. And I read into things at a depth and level that people didn't even see. So when we're sitting here in the room, having a meeting, talk about 10 things, not only do I remember the 10 things, but I remember what page of your notebook you wrote the note on when next week you say, we didn't talk about that. Right. That being said, it's a little bit too much. I have to so meet you need so that. you need a quiet environment to study. Like I remember if someone was breathing the wrong way in university, yes. like we yeah. would like in this communal kind of study area, I would have to get up and move. I was like, I can't. This person is so loud. I can hear the 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 air going up their nostrils. Like I can't. Like I I, I needed total science. And Giovanni, my partner, who you know as well, yeah. loves background noise. He always <laughs> wants music on. He always wants what like white noise puts him to sleep. I need dead, dark room, dead silence room. He likes like, whoosh, like he likes yeah. like noise. Now, now think about Giovanni. Yeah. Zen, cool, things don't get to him. Why? The exact same stimulus that you and I are experiencing, his perception truly believes it's about 40% of what we think it is. Right. He doesn't even hear the thing that's bothering us. Right. When <laughs> so people talk to you, yeah. 
They, literally, when people walk into the room to tell you something, they have to think twice about how they're going to say it, mm. right? Because they know they can very easily frustrate you, bother you, derail you, distract you. With Giovanni, it's just like throw it on the table and he'll deal with it. I feel right? seen. I feel seen. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what it is. It's this. This. It's. It's literally a reptilian part of our brain. So picture the snake that's sitting there. There's no maybe for a snake. It's either no or attack. You put your finger towards it, just all of a sudden bite, right? It, it has no, there's nothing in between. And that's what serotonin does for us. It's this response to stimulus. What should I prioritize and react to? And if your receptor is shortened, then all of a sudden your brain doesn't know what to prioritize. And every clock ticking, every hunger pang, every noise, every whatever, everyone chewing their food the wrong way, which I'm sure you don't like, it all is a problem. But when you're doing your work, and this is why it's so valuable to an entrepreneur, is every little detail matters. Every T, every I, you read an email, you know exactly everything that they said, and you don't forget dates, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All this stuff that you, if you're going to go build something, the new practice, you need to have this. Now, if you know that you don't, you need to have the right people around you. Or maybe you don't build a practice. Maybe you're an associate. Maybe you work for somebody who has that so that you're well matched. Like one of the things I remember when I was still in physical practice was one of the early mistakes that I did was I just hired people that were like myself. And what ended up happening was they ended up like getting enough experience then leaving, right? Because they wanted to start their own thing, which is great. I was always happy for them, but it's not so great for my business, right? (laughs) Like, okay, I got to replace this person now. So I think that that's also a really important consideration. You know, we're talking about this in the clinician, like in sort of like the lens of a clinician, but this could be anyone. Like if you are someone who, really works well under pressure is self-motivated who can who can um weather the highs and lows of entrepreneurship because it let it's sometimes it's a psychotic roller coaster like sometimes it's the highest of highs you're like i made the best decision in my life and other times it's the lowest of lows like what am i doing i can't do anything right why do i always keep making this mistake why do i hire this person why am i getting these legal letters you know all the things so i think that knowing you know, your genetic profile as a proxy for, uh, it's almost like a, it's like the most sophisticated personality test. You could, you know, like, you know, there's all these like personality tests online. Like, are you more like a cat or an owl? It's like, why don't you just do your genetics and you will have the most accurate, uh, let's say insight into right. who you are or your tendencies. And then you can know where you're strong and where you're weak. And that can direct some of the life choices that you make. Yeah. And it's not like a propensity or a guess. Like, I think you're this personality. It's empirical. Here's the neurochemical that drives this behavior. Here's how much of it you bind, clear, to what degree. If I have your DNA, and I've done this many times, by the way, I don't ever need to talk to you to know your personality to a T. And we do this work for like Fortune 500 type company, we do it for professional teams, like NBA, NHL teams, where we'll actually map who should actually be the captain. We've done this work for the US military, like Navy SEALs and Black Ops, Special Forces. Who's gonna come back with PTSD? Who's gonna come back with shell shock? Who can pull the trigger with zero hesitation, right? Who should actually drop the front lines and go be the engineer in the background? We've done a lot of this type of work because DNA doesn't lie, it is what it is. And going back to the PTSD thing, that's actually the, another element for that entrepreneur, which is the ADRA2B gene determines your noradrenaline relationship. 
And that's where you could have, remember I mentioned the insertion or deletion where there's a paragraph missing. Yeah. That's one of the rare genes where that's possible. And some people do have deletions here, which means when it comes to negative stimulus, they're much more likely to imprint it. And by imprint it, I mean that the feeling that they experience during that problem, they're going to use as a primary filter or driver the next time something similar happens. So God forbid there's a car accident. You know, there's some people that will jump in an Uber and go home. There's some people that can't look at a car for three months. There's some people that can never go down that street ever again in their life. Because they remember, we all experience the feeling. A car accident sucks for anybody. But do you remember the feeling? There's experience and there's the, the virtual imprint, PTSD, trauma. You can determine genetically. You know, there was a, these two, I don't know if you remember the Rwandan genocide that happened it must have been a decade ago yep, yep. The it was, it was and the, yeah yes exactly the tutsis and the Hutsus. yeah, it was, yeah. it was horrible 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 they were literally one of their biggest sort of acts of war or terror was to cut each other's arms off at the elbows to make them no longer capable and economically uh participating participating in the tribe that was their their, their terror right so as soon as the war was over these same people that were cutting each other's arms off were sitting next to each other in vegetable sands, laughing and joking like nothing ever happened. Because that entire population has the optimal ADRA2B gene. They, don't, they can't experience trauma. It's actually difficult for them. They remember it. They know it. They intellectualize it. But they don't remember the feeling when they see that person with the arm or when they see that person who cut them or whatever. So now bring this into the workplace. The, the concept of EQ, being able to read the room, knowing what people are thinking, knowing what your patients, how they perceive and to how to speak to them. There's some people that just naturally have the knack, but the knack is really the gene that allows you to reuse pain, trauma, emotional learning as your primary thought filter or driver. And those people just happen to appear to be a lot more into, emotionally intelligent and in tune. So it can be a crutch, but it can also be a superpower. And this is why the very first thing I said is that context is what drives the outcome when it comes to mood and behavior. Everything else, you know, breast cancer, Alzheimer's, diet, nutrition, it's your genes plus environment, nutrition, lifestyle. Those are the three loads that you can put on your genes, environment, nutrition, lifestyle. For your brain, there's an extra load called context. For me, I could very easily be depressed if I don't challenge myself. I could very be very easily be addicted if I go for pleasure instead of challenge. I could very easily become an entrepreneur if I go for reward instead of no challenge and no pleasure. Context is the net. Just like context is the net for the tutsu, the hutsis and tutsus, right? Are they killing each other and remembering it? Or are they so anyways, long story short, you're wired for this type of behavior. It can be a crutch. It can be a superpower. You first have to understand your wiring. Then you know what you're wired to do. And are you even in the right context? If not, make an adjustment and you'll feel great. And it makes so much sense what you're saying. I'm, I'm reflecting on, you know, the many years that I was in practice and there was almost like um, avatars, uh, yes. people who had diffuse pain syndromes, let's say fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue. They almost were the same, like obviously they're in the individual and you treat them as an individual, but they were almost like the same person. It yeah. was, you know, they would identify with the, uh, with the disease. They would call it, like, I remember, I don't know how I had, you know, maybe 10 FM patients in a row 
say my fibromyalgia. It's, yes. my, you know, and they would, they would almost internalize it. And it was almost that same, it, not, I don't want to say victim mentality, but kind of, you know, it was sort of like, this is my thing. This is my story. This is, and I'm sticking to it. So it really almost, you know, and maybe I incorrectly or correctly came to the conclusion that we were going to, you know, we were going to care for them with, to the, you know, extent that we could. Um, but if that person was really, uh, attached to that, my FM, my CFS, my, you know, my problem, that the prognosis mm -hmm. was really going to be poor with them because they didn't want to let it go. And part of that, I think, is that personality that you're talking about, like this imprint where, you know, maybe it's a serotonergic, maybe it's the, uh, maybe it's the drive to sort of stay attached to it. It could be a whole host of things, but it almost seemed like, um, there were certain avatars that kind of came through my door. Yeah. So, you know, I would, yeah. I would, yeah. Definitely. We, so whenever we work with anyone clinically, the first place and any clinician listening here, this is so important when it comes to outcomes. The first place we start is at the brain. We don't even deliver them information until we understand how they're going to perceive it. And you just gave a perfect example, my fibromyalgia. Why? Because if you are the person, and I would argue that's probably what they are, that imprints a little bit more then every time you think, talk, smell, taste fibromyalgia, you're remembering the pain of the time that it actually hurt. It doesn't hurt all the time, but the time that it did, the thing that the trigger that made you go to the doctor. That's it's more salient. It, it's more salient yeah. for those people. Yes. Yes. It's literally a label. The pain is the label. That's what they remember. And they literally will probably feel it every time they talk and think about it. We have a patient, 64 year old woman that came to our door, literally drove to our office, Google online and showed up and yelled and screamed that your test doesn't work. It's horrible. I've done every test in the world. This is the worst thing I've seen. And she was in nuts. So I said to her, wait a second, you've done every test in the world. Are you still sick? She said, yes, that's why I took your test. I said, so they didn't work for you? Well, yeah, they didn't work, but the way they do it, that's the way science works. And now you guys don't know science. I said, okay. So you, have, you don't have the outcome, which is all that matters. Let's sit down. So I literally sat down with her, opened her DNA on the, on the, or, or my laptop, sorry. And the first thing I told her is half of your problem is that you are manifesting your own problem. The way you think, the level of detail that you think at, the way you hold on to an imprint pain, your inability. So the opposite of, of that uh, warrior a dopamine pathway, if you have the maximum dopamine binding and you have the very slow clearance, it's so easy for you to experience pleasure and reward that you're constantly in it. And when it's taken away from you, there's more of an acute anxiety crash. So the person that's at the bottom, they're just kind of always there. They're used to feeling like crap. But for the person that has that crash, it's a real disaster for them and it creates this acute anxiety response as opposed to a chronic ongoing anxiety. That's what she had. So when she felt bad, it, it had so much more meaning for her because she wasn't used to feeling bad. So I showed her how the way she's perceiving this problem without discounting that the problem is real, it exists. And we figured out what the problem was also. The, dis the problem is real, but something that is potentially a two out of 10, you're experiencing as an 11 out of 10 because of how you perceive the problem and what you're then doing about what you think the problem is. This massive acute snowball that keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger, which is actually only happening in your head. So we dealt with her literally for two days. Two days I, I woke work with her, just helped her just because of the nature of how she showed up at the door. She's fine. 
one week into it, she wrote, she actually wrote a multi-page letter and dropped it off at the office saying, thank you. She's 64 years old. She's had this since she was 24. And she said, I have never felt normal for 40 years. And I've spent everything on every test, everything. So what it came down to the same problem we have. She was missing key detox pathways and she grew up in a household where both her parents smoked. So she was already overloaded when she started her life at 24. At 24 is when she left her home and started working on her own. Just the shell shock of leaving her home caused her to get sick, Hmm. which is why, you know, we asked the right questions. That's the day she moved out, which is why it it started in her head. The problem existed. Yes, there was an innate problem. The degree to which she was experiencing, highly, highly exaggerated by how she thinks. And now you can think how many multiple avatars there are and how many multiple different ways you need to deal with people. But if you deal with them in the way they need to, how optimal the outcome is, is exactly what they need in the way they need it, in the way they perceive it, in the way they can cope. And it makes things amazing for people. I want to come back to EQ for a moment. Um, We've had conversations about this in the past. I think it's worthwhile getting this in in the show as well for people to hear. Um, so I have uh, one of my sons uh, is on the spectrum. Uh, he would be what is considered what was called Asperger's. Um, right. He's a teenager now, um, and he's um, you know he's my son. He's not my biological son, but he's my son. He's my baby. Right. Um, and so. One of the things that you often hear mothers say is, and I'm I'm bringing this back to detoxification, is like after certain uh, medical interventions, certain shots, let's say, that the child has had, that they were fundamentally a different person. And I think that um, I'll clarify, you know, I'll sort of state my position here and say that we know that autism is not unifactorial. It is a multifactorial process. Yes. Um, but what we do understand, and I've run, um, I've run, uh, gen- I've run the, the DNA company's genetic testing on my 17 year old and on my two biological children as well. Um, because it's like you run it once, like genes don't change. Right. Um, yeah. and what we've seen with him is that he has just like the worst clearance pathways that you might expect a child who is like a high functioning autistic person to have. So can you speak to, um, you know, and I'm always of the opinion, you know, you were saying like women deserve the Nobel prize. It's like women, like mothers know their babies and mothers know when they're fundamentally different before and after an intervention. That doesn't mean that it's the only thing, like maybe there were pre that there were other things that led to the expression of this multifactorial disease. But I wonder if you've had any experience, um, with, uh, mothers, uh, autistic children. And if there is any, do we see any genetic presuppositions or predispositions, I should say, um, in these, um, uh, in this population, maybe their methylation is poor, maybe their, you know, their, their elimination, their conjugation, like any, is there anything that we see that's aberrant or something that we see consistently, like a pattern that emerges there? We've done a lot of work there. We've done it with a group in the U.S. called Autism Hope Alliance, and we've done work with sick kids in Toronto. And everybody, so first of all, autism, there is a condition called autism, but a good 90% of what kids are experiencing that is bucketed under autism is not that condition. There's something that kids are born with that they innately have, which causes behavioral development issues. There's groups like Sick Kids and Autism Speaks that are funding in a major way 
let's find that gene, that needle in the haystack, that we can figure out how to turn off or on, depending on what needs to be done, and it makes that problem go away. That's a real thing, right? And in fact, sorry, it's probably even more than 90%. So I would say probably 7% based on you know the work we've been doing with them are actually in this bucket. 90% plus of kids were not born with any problem whatsoever. They weren't born autistic, right? Why is it that, I don't know, was it like three generations ago, it was one in 10,000 kids? Then last generation was one in 500. Now I think it's one in 58. And they just said they think it's going to be one in 30. Yeah, I heard one in 24 by 2040, I think, or 2030. Yeah. Yeah. So what the kids haven't changed. We just said our DNA is 200,000 years old. We didn't in the last four generations all of a sudden figure out how to have ultra evolution. We're the same. The kids are the same. So what changed? What changed is just like the mother say, well, first of all, the pharmaceutical companies are right. There's nothing in the vaccine. The, the vaccine, as it's molecularly tested, does not cause autism. True. The mothers are right. That's the day my kid changed. What happened? I know my child. It's not the thing that's being tested to be proven correct. It's all the heavy metals, the adjunct, everything in the serum that comes along with to deliver the molecule that got tested for safety, that isn't tested, for which a child who is so neurologically underdeveloped at that age, so they're much more susceptible to neurological inflammation, if they don't have the right GST genes, the ability to detoxify the metals, which guess what? When it comes to GST of the gut, 49% of us don't even have the genes. Forget about what version. Another 46% only have 50% capacity. It's literally less than 10% of us that do this well. It's, it's so it's, we're not talking about a one or 2% problem. Similar numbers when it comes to, it's actually, sorry, it's, a, it's not similar numbers, but it's still extremes when it comes to the GST and the GSTP and the other detox genes. So population of which a good 30% of people don't detox properly. All of them at a young age are being given this serum with heavy metals in it, which then circulates through the blood and needs to be cleared. And they can't they clear it. Clear, yeah. Right? Yeah. And then causes inflammation. Where are they the most susceptible? Neurologically, where they're completely underdeveloped and they literally get neurological inflammation. Okay, the methylation system should kick in and start to fight, fight the inflammation and reduce it. How many of us actually methylate well? How many kids are actually eating what they're supposed to be eating? that actually supports methylation. So you have the perfect storm of the kid who can't detoxify the, the adjuncts, the heavy metals, probably can't methylate that well. Neurologically is at a phase where anything is going to cause them damage if they were to be exposed. And they're also dealing with going outside and breathing the chemicals in their baseball thing and the chemicals at school and the food laced with garbage and drying chemicals and food coloring and et cetera, et cetera. They're already there. And now and we've seen at all, like since the 1980s, we've also seen an explosion of like processed foods and, right. you know, more chemicals and things like that in, in our, in big food, let's say. Yeah. yeah. So we worked with Autism Hope Alliance and we took kids of various ages and we were by targeting the root cause, forget about this thing called autism. We were able to target the root cause, whether it was the methylation, the detox, whether it was BDNF or neurological development and bring them back. Now, this is literally brain damage, so we can't bring them back to 100%, but we've taken kids who literally, the actual president of Autism Hope Alliance, uh, Christine Gonzalez is her name. Her son 
it was a two hour routine every morning of screaming, ranting, punching holes through the wall to get him ready for school. He now ties his own shoelaces, makes his own breakfast and goes to school just like any other kid because we are able to reduce the inflammation, get him thinking clearly, allow him. And at that age, you can still repair and, you know, there's some level of damage, but he got him better by dealing with the root cause. So all, again, there's some kids that were born with something. All that big data research is one day going to fix that. The majority of kids don't fit in that bucket. Majority of kids, it's more functional. There's multiple systems, like you said, multifactorial. And if you don't deal with all of them, first you have to identify all of them, then who knows what other problems are going to come. That same kid's going to have mood issues. He's going to have IBS and Crohn's. He's going to have eczema, you know, because it's the same genetic weakness that also triggers all these other things. And so you, you can see it. It's like the spokes on the wheel, like you were saying. You can see digestive changes. You can see mood yeah. behavioral changes in these kids as well. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why the this the cornucopia of autism solutions. There's so many things that work for me, didn't work for you, work for them. Because you're a lot of it is targeting the symptomology of that hub of I can detox and methylate. Mm -hmm. And so the kid starts to feel better because you're targeting the gut, or you're targeting this, and you remove loads. You know, anyone that's carrying five backpacks is going to feel better if they're only carrying four, but they're still carrying four backpacks. You only got rid of one of them. Right. So you, you got to deal with the root, root, root. And then all that stuff goes away. Do you recommend uh, one of the things I've had? Um, I've had moms. I've had a lot of entrepreneurial moms, actually, um, that I've sort of had these offline conversations with. They're like, why did you do it for your kids? And I'm like, well, because genes don't change. So I know already what the presuppositions are for my for my children, my three boys. So I know, for example, that we need to work on, let's say, methylation, you know, as, as an example, we need to work on, you know, I have... Um, uh, one of my children, we want to make sure that their, uh, you know, that their heart health is optimized because we have certain yeah. like changes in the, you know, cardiovascular system, let's say. Um, what would you say to, uh, let's say parents, is this a good idea maybe to invest in a DNA uh, kit uh, for their children so that they can understand diet and nutrition and lifestyle, which is where I, I kind of want to go next in our conversation. But what would you, do you think that that's a good idea for people to consider? So you have something as complicated as a child. When you bought your microwave, it came with an instruction manual, you know, and you maybe tried to read a few pages first because it was an expensive microwave and you don't want to screw it up. Something as complicated as a child, you don't want to understand that how they're wired when you can. Literally, here's your every decision you have to make. Should they go in baseball or should they go in ballet? Should I be aiming for medicine or should I be aiming for art? Like, what is this kid wired for? You can find that out from the day they can spit when they're two years old. Should I be putting them into football? Are they designed to be a linebacker? Are they going to be highly disappointed? Because once they get to the age where it starts to become significant, you know, in their teens where they could have excelled, they actually don't develop like the other kids or vice versa. I put them into a track because that's what I like. I want them to run fast. And all of a sudden they hit 13, 14 and they're big and heavy and they can't move like the other kids. All of this, it's not like a, you don't have to wait for, well, let's see what's coming. It's in the human instruction manual, whether it's athletics, like I said, body development, hormones, acne, hair, skin, your young girls who are going to go through so much trouble when it comes to puberty and what changes and, you know, especially given all the hormone disruptors and how horrible they potentially could feel, whether it comes to mood and behavior, what is, how does my kid think? Why is it when I yell at that one kid? Five minutes later, he's doing it again. And the other one won't talk to me for two days. Why? Because they don't process that information the same way. 
And for one, it's a joke. For the other one, it's trauma that may compound and cause other problems later. So everything about the brain, what work should they do? What, how do they handle academics? Then again, um, you know, when it comes to this stuff, sleep is a cofactor, all that stuff. And given the current reality with all the stimulus and lights and laptops and social media, kids aren't sleeping like they're supposed to. So sleep is another big one. Can't fall asleep, circadian rhythm, can't stay asleep, has a lot to do with serotonin and, and you know, again, detail orientation. Uh, sleep through the night, wake up feeling not so rested. All these things for your child, how do I get them that rest, which is when they recover so that they're optimal the next day. Everything about innate cellular health, the detox, methylation, everything we just talked about in this autism example. What should I be worried about when it comes to their environmental exposures? The mattress that I just bought them, is that going to give them eczema because of the fire retardants that are on it? Or because it's memory foam and every time they roll over, they're popping little air bubbles of off and off-gassing and breathing that in for eight hours. What do I need to think about that I didn't even know I need to think about? Uh, and then there's, like you said, diet nutrition. And I'll use my own kid as an example there. So when it comes to diet and nutrition, that's probably the biggest area where there's just an overload of information of one size fits all. And none of these people are wrong. Go to any YouTube channel, any podcast, their, their experience was probably as it was, and it was correct, but you are not them and your kid is not them. Then you may not have the same outcome. So when it comes to diet and nutrition, my middle kid, I have three, uh, my middle son was always call it a drama queen when it came to homework wouldn't even wouldn't start wouldn't do it crazy and when i looked at you know personality wise he didn't have a call a motivation or discipline problem or he's actually very mature in his thinking around how he treats elders and respect and all that kind of stuff it just didn't make sense with the homework so i opened up his genome blinders off to say forget about the brain where do i see holes and one big glaring red flag i saw was the amy gene the ability to convert starch into glucose, worst possible genetics. His ability to manage his insulin response, worst possible genetics. Homework was after dinner in a South Asian household where there was rice and naan every day. So we were loading him with the exact kryptonite that he couldn't handle, crushing him mentally, wondering why he couldn't do his homework. That literally, that was it. It was not a discipline. It was not an attitude. It wasn't any drama queen or any of that stuff. He literally couldn't think. He was brain dead because he was having a crazy starch insulin crash every day. Now imagine the longitudinal effect of that. Childhood obesity, metabolic unhealth, diabetes, cardiovascular issues. The shame and guilt of not being able to do his homework. Yeah. 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 That the trauma of that, right? So Anyway, so this one simple tweak, first of all, his diet had to change. But second, when he ate, when he worked, that was the solution. It was not this conventional, you know, how do you punish him? How do you reward him? Carrot and stick approach. It, it had nothing to do with any of that. And you can, and with all of what we're trying to do for our kids, um, you can get very, very specific, especially if you're doing something that's very rigid, like being a vegan or being on keto or, you know, whatever you're doing, if it's very strict, it could work really, really well, or it could be the number one cause for your health concerns if you're not wired for it. The other thing I'll add to that is when you're metabolically ill, the diet that you follow then is going to be vastly different than when you are metabolically healthy. 
Right. So for example, your son who's eating the naan and the rice and all the things, maybe there's a restriction of carbohydrates temporarily, let's say. Um, and then over time, you can, you know, with the timing of the homework and everything, then we can start adding in complex carbohydrates strategically. But when he's sick, when he is, um, you know, metabolically unhealthy, the diet that you follow then uh, is different than the diet that you follow when you're healthy. So for example, I've had many women that I've worked with diabetic and or PCOS rooted in hyperinsulinemia, as you were just mentioning, uh, potentially with your son. So we restrict carbohydrates, including mm -hmm. fruit, even though fruit is a healthy food, right? But it's the response of the individual to that stimulus at that time, based on those metabolic parameters uh, that we need to change, right? And then over time, as a person gets better, maybe we start putting on lean muscle mass and we do all these other sort of lifestyle uh, interventions, then the fruit can come back, then the non can come back, then the, mm -hmm. and then again, you, you, you time it so that you're not like doing the homework, let's say, you know, you have, you know, you chow down on some non and then some rice, and then you go and you do your homework. Like maybe that's just out of the picture completely. That makes so much sense because when you are trying to fix a problem, you have to think as food therapeutically, food is therapy. So there's two phases to food that you just described. If you really generalize, there's the therapeutic phase. Here's the acute response. Band-Aid, we got to fix this thing. And here's exactly how to eat to get out of the hole. But then there's maintenance. Correct. And that doesn't look like an acute therapeutic response. And you can think of really everything that way, right? So, you, so anyways, that's brilliant what you just said, because that's exactly what people need to do. I love that. I love that. That's so great. Um, all right. So if people, so I have, as I mentioned, clinicians are wanting to, um, uh, probably going to want to start using this in their, uh, in their practice. If people want to, uh, can, does it need to be prescribed by a physician in order to get the test? Like how do people get uh, access to, um, these genetic tests? It doesn't need to be, um, um, first of all, don't pay retail. I think we organized with you a, a discount for everybody, a code. Correct. So you code, we'll figure out what that is. Um, so there's two answers to that. To the consumer, yes, you can order direct. One thing that I, from my personal experience, what I was learned that was broken is that the product was too hard to use. Meaning that when you go get a DNA test, you couldn't understand it unless you had some doctor interpret it for you. Because right. it's a bunch of data. This gene, this gene, I don't know what that means. Uh, we rebuilt it and re-envision DNA where it speaks to the problem. So it doesn't say you got the DRD, DRD2 variant or whatever. It talks about anxiety, depression, addiction, you know, fat metabolization, carb metabolism, the things you actually get and can apply. The second answer to that question is when it comes to uh, clinicians that order our testing, and if you have a clinician, uh, there's an additional set of reports we can provide clinical summaries that get a little deeper in recommendations because there's certain things that we wouldn't want to, because we don't know who we're talking to yet. So there are the overachievers that are going to do everything and then go burn themselves out. Right. Uh, so either you're coming through a clinician and that clinician will get the summary, or you are a clinician listening today and you will get the clinical summary, which gives you a little bit more recommendations and it's more condensed. So it's easier to apply or anyone listening that wants their clinician to get a copy, there's an ability in their platform where you just enter their email address and we'll send them a copy. Amazing. Amazing. I love this. And I think that there's, you know, what you're, what you're saying, I think overall, and I think the, 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 
bulk of our discussion has been this idea of bioindividuality, which is why cookie cutter medicine never, you know, from the beginning was kind of destined to fail, but we're sort of figuring all of that out now. Everybody responds differently. We're all not the same, uh, even though we have the same parts, you know, we all have arms, maybe we have hearts, we have lungs, all that stuff, but we operate very, very differently. So I love that we are looking at our genetics and then changing the epigenetics around it to optimize the expression of the gene because your genes, you know, are not, like I've said, they're not your destiny, right? You're not, you know, but they are definitely your blueprint and we mm-hmm. can change the environment in which those genes marinate in and live in every day. Like the, the, the off gassing from the mattress or the paint or the, you know, whatever, um, that you might not even ever consider, uh, you might start paying a little bit more attention to that so that the genes can flourish in the way that they're designed to. Exactly. It's literally reading your human instruction manual, understanding exactly where you're not doing well, and more importantly, knowing exactly what to do about it. Right? It's one thing for us to tell you, red flag, here's a problem. It's a whole other thing if we can tell you, here's exactly what you should do, start doing immediately so that this thing doesn't become a problem. Or if you're already sick, let's reverse it as, 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 instead of masking and treating it. Beautifully said. And um, I will make sure that the code and the link for the DNA company is in our show notes. So make sure to look out for that. Kashif, this has been such a pleasure. I oh, Anytime I get to hang out with you, it's always so fun. We get to nerd out and uh, I feel like this is going to help so many women. You know, we talked hormones, we talked, you know, and of those women, if you are a mother uh, and you want to be looking for, uh, you know, the health and optimization of your children, I think that that's unbelievably uh, valuable as well. So thank you so much for your time today. It was a pleasure. You're awesome. Thank you for having me here today. It was a great. All right. All right. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and I must give you the obligatory legal and medical disclaimer here. This podcast, Better with Dr. Stephanie, is for general information only and the advice, recommendations we discuss do not replace medicine, chiropractic or any other primary healthcare provider's advice, treatment or care. In the consumption of this podcast, there is no doctor-patient relationship that has been formed and the use and implementation of the information discussed are at the sole discretion of the listener. The information and opinions shared on this podcast are not intended to be a substitute for primary care, diagnosis, or treatment. In other words, guys, be smart about this. Take it with a grain of salt. Take this information to your primary healthcare provider and have a discussion with him or her to make the best choice that is for you. Remember, I am a doctor, but I am not your doctor. And these conversations are meant for educational purposes only.